to Podiatry Today Podcasts, where we bring you the latest in foot and ankle medicine and surgery from leaders in the field. Today we have a special episode dedicated to a lecture taking place at the APMA National in Orlando, Florida. We're thrilled to have Dr. Mark Mendezun with us today to share some highlights and tips that he is bringing up in his lecture at this conference. Welcome, doctor, and why don't you start out by introducing yourself to our listeners today. My name is Mark Mendezun. I am a senior partner at Precision Orthopedic Specialties Incorporated in Chardon, Ohio. I've been in practice and I'm starting my 27th or 28th year. I have a very diversified practice and my lecture today is going to be talking about complications of reconstructive foot and ankle surgery. So what do you feel are some of the more common complications that surgeons encounter in foot and ankle surgery? That's a great question. I think, you know, especially now in the last decade, I think expectations have to be set. I think, I don't think that's a complication, but I think with society getting everything so quickly at hand, you know, if, if we have something we can order Amazon, we can get it at our fingertips. Everything is such a quick society that people want quick results. And if you look at some of the surgeries that are going on, people want quick results and they don't understand that regardless of what surgery you may have, there's still time to heal and there can be complications. So I think you have to set the patient properly before you take them to OR. And the, the expression really is the best patient to take is the one that you don't take to the OR. If you have a bad vibe about a patient, send them out. Don't let them dictate what they need. And I am doing that more and more. And unfortunately, in the world of Yelp and reviews, you know, everybody can always be negative about us and you have to develop thick skin. What I teach my residents and, you know, I have my fellowship, I'm the fellowship director of two fellows that don't, don't give up what your training is. They're there for a reason to help you. Know, you're there for a reason to help them. But if they start dictating what they want, punt, send them somewhere else. Um, so I think you have to set the table that way. Some of the common complications, which you should review with patients all the time, obviously would be, you know, um, this isn't an easy fix. You can have complications in my, my, my diatribe of telling people of complications, pain, scar, infection, numbness, reaction to hardware, um, you know, blood clots, pulmonary embolisms, chronic regional pain syndrome, DVTs, unforeseen complications, which people can die, malignant hypothermia. So there are very multiple to multiple uh, we can, you know, complications with any patient, whether it's an ingrown nail or if it's a patient who needs major reconstructive surgery, I think you have to be very honest and you have to document that because we do have to practice defensive medicine. That is very true. And you touched on this to some extent, but what do you feel are the top one or two ways that surgeons can work to avoid or uh, manage these complications? I think you have to be honest with your patient. You have to be honest with your own skill set. And as I always tell my fellows and residents, you know, being DPMs, we have that extra letter in our degree, and we have to be better than our brethren of our DOs and MDs because people look at us with a microscope. And with that said, I think you have to be honest with your patients. You have to set realistic expectations. But I think some of the ways you can mitigate some of those complications is being honest, 
having a team approach, talking to the medical doctor, the cardiologist, the vascular surgeons, do every exam that is necessary. And honestly, unless it's a, a major trauma, letting people know that they can lose a leg or you know a bad diabetic, I don't think those are the cases that really bite us in the butt. Typically, it's the elective cases. Oh, it's just a hammer toe. Oh, I'm just taking out your ingrown nail. Oh, you know, it's just an aroma. And I think those are the cases that if we don't set the, the table properly are the ones that people come back at you and, and those can be litigious. As you're honing these skills and, and really giving everything you can towards avoiding and mitigating these complications, are there any modalities or new or emerging options coming out that might assist surgeons in doing this? Absolutely. I think that, um, you know, number one, as far as not necessarily modalities all the way, but I think being in communications with the team. If it's a pediatric patient, educating the pediatrician because many times they don't understand. Case in point, I did a case of flat foot reconstruction on a young boy last year. Postoperatively, he had some SVTs. We sent him downtown to the pediatric hospital and everything was pretty stable. He's a year out, his foot is doing remarkably well. Well, now, because I'm not on staff at that pediatric hospital, we want the parents want the, the and the child wants the other foot done. And the problem is none of the regional hospitals will do it because they state that he has to be done at the pediatric hospital. So I sent him to a pediatric orthopedic uh, surgeon and they looked at it and say, oh, you just had cosmetic surgery. And all you need is a, is a kidner. And this kid had every bit, I mean, I did a calcaneal osteotomy, I did a lateral column lengthening, uh, you know, I did tendon balancing. And, and this kid who was, was very overweight is starting to get back to activities once his foot fixed, but because I can't do it, I don't have accessibility and none of the anesthesia people will allow me to do it in my hospitals. This kid is in a rock, between a rock and a hard place. And that, you know, I'm sending him to another pediatric orthopedist so I think communication is number one. Number two, um, if anybody is smoking, cholesterol problems, high blood pressure, I always get non-invasive arterial studies. Um, if there's question that, questionable, if it's you know, someone who has vascular issues, I won't touch a patient until a vascular surgeon clears them. The local hospital that we have, you know, the vascular surgeon left, we have no vascular surgery coverage. And so some of the hospitalists are upset at me because I won't do just an amputation or just a debridement. And I'm like, I'm not touching anybody till I get the blessings of a vascular surgeon. So I think vascular studies, um, you know, I, I think sometimes MRIs can be overutilized. Um, CT scans, CT spec scans, bone scans, uh, ultrasounds, all these are in our artillery to treat patients. But to tell you that if there's anything relatively new, um, the only thing I would check also is blood work, making sure that the albumin level's fine, that they don't have any metabolic issues, you know, that they're, that the CBC and blood work and, and CBCs are okay. So I think just going old school and ordering the necessary tests, just not a, a random, you know, you know, let's get everything shotgun approach would be beneficial. And once you have that information, very rarely do I do surgery on a patient the first time. And I think a lady came in today and she has a bad bunion and she wants surgery immediately. She's done the shoes, she's done the inserts, she's done everything.
but I'm like, you understand if I do this procedure, you're going to be out of work because you work 12 hours on, on steel toe shoes for at least three months. I didn't know that. You need to make arrangements. You need to talk to your family members. So I always bring a family or a friend. Um, I always tell them, I'll talk to your job. I'll su support you anyway with paperwork. But I think you have to set realistic expectations and actually scare the patient so they know that surgery is a big deal. It sounds like communication and a very careful preoperative evaluation goes a really long way with this. Absolutely. And being honest and knowing what your skill set is. And, you know, if, if there are younger doctors starting out, you know, we're in a society now where when I do my interviews for whether, you know, the, 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 the um, fellowship, a lot of people go, first question, how many total ankles do you do? And I go, well, as many as necessary and as little as possible. It has to be on a case case patient, you know, basis. Let me teach you how to be a skilled podiatrist, physician, and surgeon, learn how to do business, learn how to work in the office, learn how to set up and tee off a patient because patients have to feel confident in you as a physician. And I've had every complication that you can imagine to the point that um, three weeks ago, I had a compartment, four weeks ago, I had a compartment syndrome. 27 year old I was coming out of my track meet it was about 9 10 o'clock and I get called to the ER and they're saying that this guy has compartment syndrome so I, I you know I, I did a decompression on him and mole fascia he was just one pain meds pain meds pain meds and normally those people after a fasciotomy a day or so do pretty well so something about him wasn't right long story short you know I get him off the pain meds I'm seeing how he's doing he comes in I'm saying all right we're just gonna let this heal regardless of the Liz Frank injury you know, we can always address that down the road. Next day I'm in surgery, I get called, he's dead. So my heart drops and I'm thinking, oh my God. And I'm thinking pulmonary embolism. So I started asking myself, hey guys and my fellows, what, what is the treatment for compartment syndrome? You can't put them on anticoagulation, right? So I said, let's look into it. But he didn't have a PE, right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, he died with a needle in his arm. His parents found him dead, overdeed. When people come in for pre-op, if they're smoking marijuana, if you detect that, it's okay to do drug screens on patients. And I think that's important. And you can select what you can do and can't do. And he hit it pretty well. I think that was allegedly from the mother state the first time he did drugs. I don't know, but it was laced with fentanyl and he died. So it was horrible. Um, you know, I had a patient at a Charco many years ago and the Charco went really well. And we were pushing him out of the room and the back wheel was still in the room. He took a deep breath and he coded. What well, my topic is, you know, I think learning how to manage DVTs, but the topic that I only had 10 minutes to talk for my conference was chronic reg uh, complex regional pain syndrome. And I think that is a condition that if we don't recognize early and truly understand it, these patients will be miserable. Um, it affects their life tremendously. So it's something that to me rings a bell to me because I've seen everything from, you know, from someone committing suicide to recognizing it early, to trying to get these people squared away, to learning what the new treatments are. So in the lecture, there is old treatments where you used to get, recognize it early, control their pain, get sympathetic blocks, start physical therapy, things of that nature, get psychiatry or psychology, get the team. Um, and then... You know, upon doing research, now are, are frowning upon doing regional blocks. 
And I'm like, really? So, you know, so, you know, it went from RSD when I was in school, you know, to now it's CRPS to now there's CRPS one to CRPS two. And, and it's, it's one of those unbeknown. So I think of all the types of surgeries that we do in treatments, nerves to me are the scariest because you don't know. And um, so CRPS is my, my 10 minute lecture that I have to give at the end of the month. And I just wanna have people emphasize that that's something that shouldn't be taken lightly. And that if you don't know, then just learn some of the basics and always have a team behind you, especially uh, um, you know, a, a, a um, pain management who does this type of work. And there are some groups and depending where people live, they have some tremendous centers to help people with CRPS. But if you can catch it early, then these people may have a chance to bounce back. But when they're neglected, it, it is devastating for these poor people. Their life is over. I remember in residency, my one attendant did a toenail, an ingrown nail on this girl. She wound up with a triple orthodesis because of crips. You know, and you ask yourself, what can you do to do better? So, you know, complications, I think if you don't want to handle complications, you don't feel confident. Uh, everybody wants 100% guarantee, but in this world, you just got to say, no, you're not going to get it. So th that's what rings with me. And it just seems that if you do enough work, you're going to see enough complications. It's having the patient's confidence in you to, to go through these rough waters to get them to the end. And uh, once you lose that communication and they lose confidence in you, that's when it gets to become ugly, unfortunately. Well, those are some really great points that you brought up, especially from your lecture um, at the APMA National this year. Are there any other points that you want to share with the audience today? Absolutely. I just think uh, for the younger members that are starting out, and even for anybody, um, just understand that we're in a different en environment now. And, you know, everybody is, is, can get information off Dr. Google. So I think learning how to get a feel for your patients, getting an idea of what you're comfortable with, not doing the same procedure all the time, and really emphasizing and, and really scaring patients to let them know surgery is serious stuff and go over the complications and document it. So that if it does happen, no one can say you never told me. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and experiences with us today. And I'm sure that attendees at your lecture at the APMA National are going to benefit as well. Thank you to the listeners for tuning in again to Podiatry Today podcasts. I'm Dr. Jennifer Spector, the Assistant Editorial Director for Podiatry Today, and we hope that you'll continue to join us for future episodes that you can find on podiatrytoday.com, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you.